Um, afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Fremantle Chamber's Leaders' Luncheon. I would like to acknowledge this land we meet on, this traditional land of Wajuk people, and that we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We welcome the contribution they make to the life of this city and this region. For those who don't know me, my name is Ivan Zeba, and as a president of Fremantle Chamber of Commerce, I welcome you here today. It's great to see uh, some of our top 100 local business uh, people here in this room today being part of this conversation. Um, I would also like to acknowledge our esteemed guests, the Honorable Simone McGurk, MLA, Minister for Child Protection, Women's Interest, Prevention of Family and Domestic Violence, Community Services, and State Member for Fremantle, City of Fremantle, Dr. Brad Pettit, and Councillors Jenny Archibald, Rachel Pemberton, John Strachan, Andrew Sullivan, and Hannah Fitzharding. If I have missed any of the councillors that may be present, I do apologize. Uh, representatives of our Fremantle Chamber of Commerce corporate partners, City of Fremantle, Commonwealth Bank, Fremantle Ports, L3 Oceania, the Department of Communities, University of Notre Dame, and W Maritime Museum. Welcome to our media partners, Community News and Business News and all other media um, in the room today. Most importantly, all of you are valued members and future members. Um, you're the life and soul of Fremantle business community. Fremantle Chamber is proud uh, to be and always has been a leader in this type of conversations. Being a voice for economic growth in the region, conversations like this are very important um, and help us to understand the needs um, of our members and the business community at large. It also reflects the historic importance that Fremantle Chamber has played in helping shape the um, Fremantle as it is today and going forward into the future. We're always at hand here to assist our members, and I would encourage everyone, if you're not a member, to join us and be part of this conversation and exciting times that lay ahead for Fremantle. As I mentioned, Fremantle is on the cusp of major period of growth with some major big projects um, at the completion stage and others about to commence. There are exciting times ahead and I myself personally am looking forward with all of you to be part of this journey going forward. I now invite CEO Denisha Quinlan to introduce our esteemed panel to start today's discussion while you dine on delicious meals by the Esplanade Fremantle. Thank you. I'd like to echo Ivan's comments in recognising the land of the Wadjuk people on which we meet today and also welcome all of our dignitaries and business leaders here. I think the 80s era of the long lunch seemed well and truly over, but I am so, so pleased to see so many of you in the room today. Um, we've aimed to have a fairly informal but insightful um, discussion. We have an extraordinary panel of guests lined up. Lunch will be served during our conversation, so feel free to, uh, to keep eating and dining um, as we go through. My job today uh, is to guide you through the discussion, um, but before I do, I'd like to particularly thank our sponsors for the day, the Esplanade Hotel for hosting us, and our beverage partners, Fern Grove and Little Creatures. They are allowing us to have a long lunch, which is excellent, so I hope you all stay. Enjoy the refreshments through to three o'clock. It's very rare, I think, that most of us get that chance to do so. Um, 
So whilst um, we'll be talking uh, with the panel, we'd like to get as much obviously out of our panel and uh, guests here. We also would love to have some questions from the floor. Um, we'll have a short period of time, so maybe jot down a couple of questions as you go or think of them, but we'll need to keep them quite tight and succinct. Um, but once the panel discussion finishes, you'll certainly have a chance to um, hear from the floor. And as Yvonne mentioned, such an important part of the work we do at the Chamber is really to hear the voices of business in Fremantle and to really lay that on to our various stakeholders. So we really are looking forward to a very, very stimulating discussion. I'm going to take a seat in the chair and one by one I'll invite our panellists up. I'll throw an opening question to each one of our panellists as they come up and then um, we'll have more of a, a discussion. But I think the first question at least just gives us a chance to hear from uh, each one of our guests today. So I'm going to take a seat. And first up today we have Matthew McNeely, Managing Director of Serona Capital. Matthew joined Serona Capital almost a decade ago to establish its real estate and development business. He holds an MBA from London Business School and has had more than 25 years experience in the provision of corporate advice, funds management, primarily in real estate, banking and turnaround situations. I think we've had a few of those in Fremantle recently. <laughs> we welcome Matthew and his perspective on Fremantle's growth and investment potential. But in particular, we look forward to his thoughts on the role of King Square and its role in Fremantle's future. Matthew, obviously the face of Fremantle is changing and no more evidence than around King Square. I think we spoke five years ago. It was almost a decade before that. I think that some of these concepts had been floated. You've persevered for a long time. You've had a lot of faith in Fremantle. Do you want to just talk us through why you persevered and what you really see Fremantle's core assets are? Look, I think um, long journey, you're right. Um, ten years is a long time in anybody's life and a lot of grey hair and so on ten years later. But I think like probably everybody in the room, just a, a great love of Fremantle. So the, the fact that it's, you know, got this wonderful tapestry of it's a port city, it's a university town, um, the arts and culture mix, the tourism, um, the heritage, all of those things um, appealed to me at the time um, as a really interesting place to invest and develop. Um, and then there was this additional, I guess, challenge of... Uh, wading into the central CBD, which um, looked pretty unloved 10 years ago. Elements of it still look pretty unloved too today, so there's still a, a fair way to go. Um, but it was that, that sort of, I guess, opportunity challenge that drew me to it. Um, from there, um, buying the Meyer building was, to be frank, a little bit of a punt um, at, at the time, but the the relationship, and I do want to emphasise this today, the relationship with the city of Fremantle um, has been first class and I think um, where we have benefited and hopefully the city of Fremantle feels this way too is we, we've ended up in a, you know, what is it for all intensive purposes, a public-private style partnership um, where the interests of both us as a private developer and uh, the city of Fremantle are actually aligned. So, so often you find developers and local authorities sort of punching on and, you know, and trying to, to do things that are at odds with each other. In this particular instance, I think our interests have been fully aligned. Um, I think both the city and the state government, for that matter, has understood the economic benefit um, that a project like Kings Square uh, will drive um, and, and act as... 
you know, this catalyst, I guess, for future investment um, into Fremantle. And I would hope that King's Square already has encouraged other building owners, developers and so on um, to have a go because the, 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 and I, you know, I'm 52 years of age. I, um, you know, I have very fond memories of being a drunk 20-year-old down here during the America's Cup. Um, and and that, that's a glimpse into what Fremantle can actually be and what it, you know, what it could be in the future. And so I've always had that reference point of that's what I would like Fremantle to become again, albeit with a bit of a contemporary feel to it, sort of more forward-looking. So, so you know, lot, there are, I could go on forever. I mean, there's lots of, of reasons. My love for Fremantle continues. Um, there's a lot more that I want to do here. Um, King's Square, I think, is looking like it's going to be a fantastic addition. Um, I say that with some trepidation, a little bit of nervousness around when we ultimately open it in April next year. Um, but at the moment, um, you know, government's in there doing their fit out. So we are in the home straight. The retail leasing um, is looking incredibly promising. So and that's been a tough journey given just the general retail economic environment um, that we're facing. But I think I've managed to pull together a bunch of best in class operators, uh, retailers that are, you know, that, that will, will provide a really magnificent precinct, so which is what FOMO will be. Um, so I don't want to take up all the time. So no, that's fantastic, Matthew. And I think um, that sense of, I guess, atmosphere that you referred to in the 80s of Fremantle and the life and the colour, you know, I think for a period we maybe lost a little bit of sight of that and I think it's wonderful to see developers like yourself bringing that life and that colour back. And yep. I think we've just got to continue. And on that note around fabulous buildings and life and colour, I always feel a little like I'm mentioning royalty when I mention Geoffrey London's name um, as one of the state's most respected advisors. Um, Geoffrey is a professor of architecture, a former state government architect for Western Australia and also Victoria. A local Fremantle resident, he's married to one of my favourite authors. Um, Geoffrey, we so look forward um, to your perspectives on the creative sector and how we harness their growth here. For those of you who aren't aware, um, we have some 217 architectural and design firms hidden away in the halls of Fremantle, um, along with a similar amount of music and performing arts and cultural production companies. All of this growth in the creative sector for Fremantle seems to be growing at an incredible rate. And Geoffrey, I'm really interested in what you think draws these individuals and their businesses to Fremantle and what we have to do to protect from both an asset as well as, I guess, a more intangible perspective to keep these sectors wanting to call Fremantle home? I, I think one of the unique qualities of Fremantle is that it's urban. It's like a little urban oasis in the middle of the vast metropolis of Perth. Um, Perth is starting to regain some of its urban qualities that it lost from the 60s and 70s, but Fremantle has never lost it its qualities and it's retained a mix of uses so you can walk along the streets and stumble across all sorts of things. It has a series of tight well-defined streets with buildings right up to uh, the sight line and I think that creates a kind of urban stage for casual encounters and all sorts of things to happen that can't happen in other settings. Uh, and and why, why those design-based companies come here, you'd have to ask them that actual question, but um, I'd suggest it does have a lot to do with the physical environment that they're 
they're within. And <clears throat> it takes a small number to, to begin with and then a community develops and they feed off one another. I think there is a real sense of communality amongst the design professionals here. Um, they meet regularly at some of the great amenities that are offered in Fremantle and they're growing, which is very welcome. Um, I think to keep them here, uh, well, let me speak for the architectural profession, um, use them. <laughs> Commission the local architects to do the local work. I mean, the local professions, the local practices have a really good understanding of the place. And uh, I've been serving on the Fremantle Design Advisory Committee and one of the regular pieces of advice we offer people when they come to that committee is talk to a local. You know, bring someone on board who can assist you with an understanding of the place. And um, I think it's all too easy to go out and commission someone who's just going to drop a building that could be located anywhere in Western Australia or the world rather than have someone tailor it to the particularities of this place. Uh, and I think that goes not just for architects but for all the other design-based professions that are in the place. Use them, commission them, value them. It's a terrific adjunct to this place. I think you're absolutely right and I think it doesn't just apply to the design firms, it applies to our hospitality sector and our retail sector and um, we're really pleased in December to be launching a bit of a Fremantle from the Insiders Day where we can actually explore our city and refer other businesses to the amazing things that we find as we wander our streets and I think the point you make about Fremantle's soul and its ability to wander and what we find and discover is such an appeal and it's a very intangible thing to sell to others but I think as a business community it actually is our asset and we have to find more creative and interesting ways to tell that story definitely. And on uh, wandering about, um, the University of Notre Dame it has been, I guess, the heart of uh, our historic West End for some time now, bringing all of those amazing students um, in to, to learn. Um, it's enabled a greater profile of our port city to grow internationally, though obviously not without some controversy from the Fremantle community from time to time. Um, I'm very happy to welcome Julian Smith up here. Um, Julian is responsible for strategy and planning at the university in his role as Pro Vice-Chancellor. We really look forward to Julian's insight into what is, I guess, now being called the new knowledge economy and what this really means for Fremantle. Julian, you sit at really one of the heads of a significant learning institution, but one that is the heart of the West End at the moment. What role do you see for the tertiary sector within Fremantle and, I guess, its role as it grows and attracts more individuals into the future? Thanks very much for having us along by the way, so thank you. Um, oh, I think one of the important things around that question is, um, is the point that not only are we in the city, that for us we desperately and, and actively try to be a part of the city. And so I think, um, as Geoffrey sort of touched on, the opportunity for a university, uh, any tertiary learning environment, um, challenges have that, to actually have a community that already exists around us um, and so I, you know, I sort of see the opportunity for university and community in that. Um, at, we've talked about 216 sort of creative industries and, and we've got an architecture school that's just opened up this year and it's got its first cohort going now. And clearly that is a direct response to the context in, in which we get to enjoy our day. So um, 
that, that idea that the university or an education institution or a community um, is not a set of isolated parts, but are really important to be connected and actively engaged in that. Um, what can that do, I think, for a, for a community? What can it do for Frio? I think there's a, a number of answers on a whole, uh, on a series of levels. I think, you know, the most obvious level is, as you talked about, um, we bring four and a half thousand students down here um, for most days of the, most days of the um, academic year. Um, we, we bring um, visitors for, to conferences and training um, that come down here because there's a university down here. They stay uh, locally. They um, stay on for the weekend. Um, so we're an active part of the economic community, I hope. Um, the other part is I think we're hopefully we can also be a part of the active part of the sort of social and cultural community. Um, you know, the academic life of a university is more than just uh, students. Um, it's you know, professors and ideas and the challenge of, of debate and the opportunities for, for us to sort of engage with the community, community to engage in those ideas and those challenge of ideas I think is really important. One of the things I always find interesting um, in, in the work that we do is the role that we can play, I guess, as a global ambassador for Fremantle. And that this is not necessarily just, you know, that we should recognise our tertiary institutions and, and Fremantle more widely as a state asset, as a national asset. Every time we advertise globally um, f for international students or, or, we, or our staff travel globally, they go with the University of Notre Dame Australia, Fremantle, Broome, Sydney. And so every marketing dollar that we spend goes out with that on it. And I think, so I think there's a role that we can play um, as ambassadors for our, for our community and our context. Um, so I think it's a really exciting time for Fremantle and exciting time to be part of that community. Absolutely, and, and such an interesting conversation too around mm. space and mm. utilisation of yeah. space within the city. We'll come back to opening yeah. open the bottom floors at some other point in time. It <laughs> um, now also gives me great pleasure to introduce um, Brody Carr. Um, I saw Brody pop up on my LinkedIn feed actually last night, celebrating his first year, I hear, of back on our shores as Managing Director Tourism WA. Brody has an extraordinary level of experience in events, attractions and brand development. He has been global CEO for the World Surfing League, co-founder and CEO of Front Foot Agency and an advisory board member to the National Basketball League. We welcome Brody's international focus and his insight into Fremantle's future as a destination of choice for visitors across the globe. Brody, Tourism WA has changed the face of Perth as a destination in the last couple of years. You've pulled off two incredible sporting events and a barrage of tourists are flocking onto our ferries to get their quokka selfie. My question to you to start us off today, is Fremantle just a passing point between these activities or does it own part of the WA tourism story in its own right? I got, I got the tough question. You got the tough one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we dragged you down here for a reason. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it's um, wonderful to be here and it's always, always great to come back to Fremantle. It um, holds a dear place in the heart of my mum's um, my, my family, so I always, always like coming back to Frio. Um, look, I think to sort of go straight to your question about um, do people just come here to get on a ferry to go to Rotto to get a quokka selfie? Um, they don't. Uh, we see a lot of people come here 
to come and experience the, like you said, the urban, the history, the heritage that Frio offers. People from Perth that um, live here and want to just go to Frio, I think they probably maybe go straight to Frio, go straight to Rotto. Um, but we see international visitors coming um, a lot. Just A lot of them will just come to Fremantle themselves. Um, this year with State of Origin, I know that um, Fremantle was almost purple with Queenslanders being, being down here on one particular day. So, look, people, people um, definitely come to Frio to experience what it has to offer itself and not just to get on a ferry. Um, I want to take a moment to explain something that we're embarking on at Tourism WA because it's, um, it's an exciting time for us. So I'm going to just steal the... You asked me the tough question, but I'm going to steal the floor for a little bit. Um, we're about to embark on a whole new brand um, and a whole new marketing strategy. Uh, and that's, that's coming from um, a place where we've gone out to industry. We actually came here to Fremantle. Um, we sat in one of these rooms here and we met with a lot of people from Fremantle. Um, and the, the place it's coming from is coming from the heart of Western Australia. So we've gone around the state and we've met with a lot of locals in their regions to find out what's unique about um, their place. Um, and we're distilling down that unique story of, of Fremantle, that unique story of Exmouth, that unique story from around the state. We're distilling it down into a uh, narrative that will create a unique position for Western Australia, but a unique position that everyone in their own destination and, in, and their own locality can actually use and um, tap into and help to market themselves. Um, so we've, we've done the exercise with the narrative. Um, it's in consumer testing at the moment. So it's in the UK, it's in um, China, it's in Singapore and it's in domestically on the East Coast. So we're consumer testing whether it actually, what we think it is, um, actually resonates with consumers that want to come here. Um, and Fremantle plays a, a big part in that. Um, we get that consumer testing back um, next week. Um, and then we'll discuss it at our board meeting um, the day after. Um, and it's probably, that's reminded me just to acknowledge Linda Wayman, who's on our board and resident of Fremantle. So she's always pushing us on Frio. Um, had to make sure I invited her to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that narrative is, is coming out soon. At the same time as that um, narrative is happening, we are also actually... Um, uh, finding our new creative agency. So our creative agency um, is expiring. Um, so we need to go out to market and find a new one. So we're very close to finding what that new creative agency will be and then we'll hand them over the, the new narrative and then they'll bring that narrative to life and um, we'll start to see it in campaigns um, in the middle of next year. Unfortunately, most people don't get to see the campaign work that we do because it's not actually aimed at people in... Western Australia so much. It's aimed at over the Easter um, or, or internationally. So just wanted to make that point. Thanks, Brody. I feel like I hear, um, for those of you who aren't aware, the chamber building is right next door to the fire station backpackers and my window opens up into their courtyard. So I have a very intimate understanding of how much our European backpackers love Fremantle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, certainly um, appear to come to stay and to, um, to really enjoy it. So I think both from an independent travel point of view, um, Fremantle has a big future, but also obviously from um, the 
work the Destination Marketing Group are doing around events and conferences and being able to offer something truly unique. Um, will be interesting to see how the new campaign feeds into all of that. My final panellist, um, I love um, talking about, since meeting Eva at a defence event about six months ago, it was almost my, my first month at the Chamber, I have been so intrigued by how we've managed to secure this amazing organisation um, on our doorsteps. For those of you who aren't aware, um, Eve has spent almost three decades building one of Fremantle's most secret success stories, I think in many ways. Um, she moved from a technology project manager to managing director over this time. And the company is L3 Oceana. It's an Australian defence partner of choice and delivers complex communication system, integration and sustainment programs across all domains from their headquarters right here on Muse Road. From the technology to send the world's deepest text, from James Cameron's record-breaking Marinia trench uh, dive, to so top-secret undersea submarine surveillance, L3 are world leaders that continue to call Fremantle home. We so look forward to Eve's perspective on our ability to hold and capture the marine and defence industries, and particularly with all the changes within that sector, um, within our economic base. Eve, you have chosen to remain in Fremantle despite the extraordinary growth of your organisation over time. I know that there are some changes and, and that that decision is a really difficult one at the moment. I'd love to know from you what you see our core assets are and what we need to find to continue to hold businesses like L3 Oceana here. Thanks, Denisha. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're just in a, a little bit of a different category than um, some of the other speakers, but it, it really all ties in together. You know, we need the um, the things that are in Fremantle, the, the um, you know, nice places to be like King's Square, the, the you know, the, all the students coming through the universities, all the, the you know, the livability of it, everything else. And, and for us, you know, a lot of it is, is really about having people that are, very smart people that have a lot of choices of where they want to, to live and where they want to work and having them want to be able to, you know, want to work in Fremantle. So, so yeah, one of the, the key things is really that whole environment here and being able to um, have something extra that we can use to, to attract people to work in our company. Mm. Um, there's often a lot of talk around underutilised spaces in Fremantle and the opportunity it presents. Um, these vast spaces often have significant challenges, not just bringing up to code and standard, but even getting access to landlords and those sorts of things. I'd love to start with you too, Eve, because I know that the space situation has been one that you've been struggling with. Um, how do you see the spaces? And I'll come back to obviously Jeffrey and, and Matthew and the others on the panel just around the more development side of the challenge. But from a, I guess, an organisation that's growing and needs more space and having investigated some of the spaces you have done, what do you see as some of maybe the hurdles and, and do you have any ideas of how we can overcome activating some of those underutilised spaces? Yeah, so I guess this is probably one of those um, tough question categories for, for me because, you know, much as we love Fremantle, it is sometimes a, a little bit of a, a conflict between, um, you know, people wanting to have the, the, the city of Fremantle be very livable, be very, you know, where people can walk around, where there's a lot of the, the traditional places kept there, everything nice. But yet, you know, when you've got a, a growing company, we've got more than 80 people now based just down the road. 
you know, they want to have a nice place to work, you know, office space, parking, lots of other things. So sometimes that's a, it's a, just a bit of a, a conflict, trying to work out how to, how to balance those. So, yeah, for us, trying to find the, the space, I mean, the way we've done it at the moment is we've got a, a couple of buildings, um, you know, one on one side of the railway tracks, one on the other side. So we kind of tell people that's how they, they get there, walking around Fremantle. <laughs> so, you know, come down the road for lunch, um, go the other direction to the other office. But... That creates its own challenges when you've got to spread out in a, a number of buildings. Um, not always the, the most optimal from a, a business and work point of view. So, yeah, I think a lot of it for us is just trying to um, find a way where we can have enough space to be able to uh, grow. We do have a lot of growth potential. We are probably one of the larger um, technology businesses in Fremantle, I think. So. It's, it's a little bit of a, a push sometimes also. We're in the defence space, so you know a lot of times the, we've got the state government encouraging us to move down to, to Henderson and saying, well, that's where a lot of the defence companies are based. I don't know if any, any of you have been down there, but it's not what I would call livable, <laughs> walkable, <laughs> any of that. Um, my team tend to say I'd rather be crowded into this building and into a few buildings in Fremantle than um, having to, to sort of be down there. So, yeah, a lot of it is is just trying to find a big enough space for us. But for us, it's not just office space. We do have equipment, you know, we do have um, need warehouse space. Um, at the moment, we've got a big acoustic test tank that, um, you know, it's like a, a big swimming pool in a... In a um, big wooden vat if you want to, if you can picture it. So, you know, we have our own challenges trying to find another another space. So, yeah, it's difficult. It's not one we've been able to solve at the moment. We're kind of hanging in in Fremantle and, um, you know, I have had some offers. Certainly the city of Fremantle have been very um, open to, to trying to help us to be able to stay in Fremantle. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just one of those that sometimes there is a little bit of a conflict, as I say, with trying to have people want to keep things traditional, have a lot of people want to not have big businesses in Fremantle, you know, you want to have things where there's small things and it's all very nice and um, friendly and, you know, um, resident-based rather than having um, businesses like us that are, are growing and, and just want that extra space. Absolutely. I, for one, have spent most of my career working up in the city of Perth and the joy of coming four minutes down the road to my workplace <laughs> cannot be underestimated, I feel, to add to that quality of life. Um, Geoffrey, I'm really interested in your perspective on underutilised spaces in Fremantle and from an architectural point of view and code perspective, some big challenges. Do you, and in the, your experience both within the state government here and Victoria, have any ideas around how we can... I guess, streamline some of those processes and make some of those amazing spaces um, more accessible? There are some fundamental things that, that need to be met in occupying old spaces. One is fire, uh, new, new fire code regulations and fire escape. That's clearly a major, major one. But um, an astute architect can sort those things out <laughs> for you without, for the without too many industry. difficulties. <laughs> and um, really, I think to occupy a characterful shell with a contemporary um, office space or uh, other kind of use is, is a really attractive outcome. And I walk down High Street and I look up and I see spaces like the space for lease currently above the old RSL club and you see up to the roof of it and the skylights in it and it's vast. It's really epic. We don't build spaces like that anymore. It's got real volume and character to it. 
So um, how to get people in there? I think it's a question of the kind of rents that are being charged at the moment, and some of them are clearly inflated. Um, some spaces are simply not accessible. They're made inaccessible by uh, landlords for whatever reason. I, I, I suspect that there is a campaign that needs to be run that uh, encourages people to make space available for adaptive reuse. Uh, and, and once the space is available and you can demonstrate the kind of quality outcomes you can get from it, from several new <laughs> adaptive reuse exercises, I think others will come. The more a place is occupied, the more it's going to attract people. I think you're absolutely right and I think it feeds into Eve's point as well that when we have the ability to attract international talent, whether it's tourists, whether it's workers, there's an expectation of what our spaces will look like and be and feel and we have a huge opportunity. It's just getting that word out there sometimes and as you said, the landlords in many ways to do it. Matthew, do you have any comments on spaces in Fremantle? Obviously, you're looking around a lot and there's been significant investment not only from yourselves but Silverleaf and Minda in recent times. How do we keep that going? How do we keep those horizons and those changes being made? Oh, look, I, I, think, <clears throat> I think the way I've always viewed it is uh, certainly employment has a really significant role to play in Fremantle. So state government decision to relocate 2,000 office workers here is going to be a significant catalyst, I think, and, and, and catalyst in so much as I've always viewed Fremantle as a potential second CBD for, for, for Western Australia or for the Perth metro area. Um, and I think there will be ancillary service providers that will be looking for office space and I already know of a number of them who are in the market um, who will sort of hang off that, that government um, move. Um, but, but I think, to come to your question about how... We've kind of painted ourselves into a bit of a corner in terms of regulation makes it, as Jeffrey's just pointed out, really hard to occupy some of these, these spaces. Um, and, and I'm never quite sure... I'm, I'm, we live in a completely over-regulated world, in, in my view, um, because there should actually be no unoccupied spaces. There is demand out there. People are always looking for space. We know it certainly from... A creative industries point of view which is you know certainly one of the brands of Fremantle you know these spaces should should find a way or should be we should be able to find a way um, to occupy them so so I think it's a it's a combination of things um, going forward you know you deliver office workers employment people are going to want to move here we've got to deliver residential accommodation I think you know Fremantle could be the most amazing place to live um, and I think if we were all sitting here in 10 years time we'll all be lamenting the fact that in fact we're not making any more of it the place will be kind of half built out so I'm I'm very optimistic and positive about Fremantle's future as you know um, and then that of course becomes self-fulfilling around retail so so retail you know th th there's I mean there's a complete dislocation going on due to technology um, that, that you know sort of is changing the way retail gets delivered but but Fremantle's opportunity is to be different, it dares to be different, um, different architecture, um, different ways of delivering retail spaces. I think inevitably that's going to be really strong here as well. But you do need a resident population um, within close proximity to that retail to make it self-perpetuating. Absolutely. And I think 
you know, we've talked a lot about the, the lack of residential in the inner city I mean, and it plays out in everything from, you know, numbers of residents to vote in local government yeah. right through to people to activate um, our many a multitude of hospitality venues. Um, Brody, just on the, um, I guess, from a... Um, building perspective, a lot of um, Victoria Key and I guess even some of the changes at Fishing Boat Harbour and Inner City are looking at boutique hotel development, um, a growth in sort of um, potentially the cruise sector. From a, I guess, a development point of view, hotels, where they sit within that international landscape and the new marketing campaign, is it a case we build it and they will come or do you see tourism and Tourism WA having a strong role in how we fill some of these um, spaces over time? Um, I think that the, the challenge a little bit on hotels is there's an oversupply in Perth at the moment. So um, I think if we build hotels down here it'll be a struggle because they're struggling in Perth. Um, in 2012 there was, there was no supply and booming resource industry um, where prices were just driven out of the market and we had no leisure tourists coming because they couldn't afford $800 to stay in a three-star in Perth. So that resulted in now what we have is a, an oversupply and very, very affordable hotels. So I think from a hotel perspective, um, a large hotel development down here would be hard. Um, but, you know, like... Frio offers all those unique nooks and crannies that make it so special. So boutique hotels, small stuff, the backpackers that, you know, in the in the place next door to yours are, are, are what makes it attractive. Some people aren't attracted to go and stay in a large five-star Ritz-Carlton. They want, they want to have a more unique experience, which I think Frio offers. Absolutely. Thanks, Brody. It, it is an intriguing one, um, I think, on that boutique landscape market because it, it is independent travelling is obviously such a big part of Fremantle as well and having those spaces. Um, just quickly and I'll jump away from you after that but um, the cruise industry um, gets touted a lot I think by everybody in the room as a bit of a panacea or a, an opportunity of the future for Fremantle um, and I know we've got Renata in the room who um, has some great insight into that sector. Um, Tourists and crews, how does it all fit together in the landscape locally here? I thought you were going to ask me another tough question about the passenger terminal. But no, I wasn't going to dare. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it gets people through really quickly, which is important. <laughs> um, look, cruise is, a, cruise is a bit of a sleeping giant. Um, it's, it's a ma globally, it's huge. It's, it's a massive, massive market. Um, we only just touched the surface of it. Um, and... In the past, um, Broome and Exmouth have been an Achilles heel for Frio. Um, cruise ships um, found it difficult to come to Western Australia to, to piece together an itinerary because they couldn't berth at Broome and, and Exmouth was just, was just too challenging. So many aborted um, stops. So um, Broome now, and I know we're talking about Frio, but Broome now has... Um, dredged and fixed its port um, and that has allowed Exmouth still has a long way to go and there's we've got ongoing discussions there but just by broom fixing its port has allowed us to have some really great discussions with some all the major cruise lines um, the team at TWA Renata and, and Christine Ren Christine was in Shanghai last week talking to a couple and they go to all the global cruise conferences um, they they're along cruises 
are a long lead time. Um, so the bit like aviation deals that we do, they're two to three years away. Um, they have to schedule them, they have to get the boats here, all that kind of stuff. But what um, what the, the cruise ships that come here, they they actually, and I'll, I'll talk about the passenger terminal because it's it's appropriate. They the the actual cruise ships don't want people. It's not like an airport, the passenger terminal. They want them off and they want them to go out and do their stuff, have fun, experience, and get back on. Um, so I wanted to make that point, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what we're seeing the demand coming forward. Um, this year we had. 30 um, cruise ships come to Fremantle um, and I think our first one for the summer arrives in two days time and next year we have one less, we have 29 but the ones that are coming are bigger so we actually have an extra about 12,000 passenger opportunities um, and then the year after that we've already got 37 so we're seeing, we're seeing growth, um, there is a lot of demand that we see coming from the cruise industry that, that want to come to Western Australia because it's a new, unique new offering that they don't have anywhere else in the world. Um, and as they go up the coast or down the coast, every place is really, really different and unique. So um, I think it's a great, I think it's something Frio absolutely definitely can own um, and should own. It's great to hear no that. No more tough questions? No more tough questions, <laughs> I promise you. I've almost picked out a few different perspectives that have been mulling over in my mind to kick us off. So sorry we're jumping around a little bit, but I think it's such a rare opportunity to have the thought leader sitting at the, at the bench to actually be able to um, ask you the questions. Um, and one of the other burning ones for me is this whole idea around the collision economy and the role that the creative sector has within um, industry. We've got major shifts going on with our maritime industry, I guess, and, you know, a historic part of Fremantle has been our working fishermen's harbour as well as our working port. Um, you know, questions around what that might look like into the future are obviously huge. And, Eve, I think you're at the forefront of looking at a lot of that marine um, industry and business down Muse Road there, potentially juggling. Um, a number of our members are juggling that decision between whether they stay in Fremantle or move down to Henderson. A huge part of Fremantle that would be lost if we don't maintain it. They're also talking arts, creative sector, being involved in, you know, these changes of the way industries formed in a much more, oh, I guess, less divisive um, sector breakdown and that there's a little bit more sort of, I guess, blending and merging. How do you see that? What sort of economy are we looking at into Fremantle in the future and do you see marine and defence being part of that? Yeah, I think... Um, well, defence generally is really starting to, to boom in, a, in Australia. I mean, there's a lot of shipbuilding for those of you that, that follow any of that side of things as a, a really a once-in-a-generation sort of replacement of, of some of the, um, the Navy um, assets, so ships um, and submarines primarily. So it's a, you know, there's, there's a lot happening. I think in Western Australia in, in past years, Defence was really ignored. I spent most of my time on aeroplanes going to Canberra. Probably still do, but you know, nonetheless, there's there's more happening now in WA. Um, I think before a lot of the the focus was on oil and gas. People could live, you know, wherever they thought was livable, where they were comfortable, and then be able to um, fly in, fly out, and go somewhere else. It really is quite a big change with a, a lot of the the defence growth now and a lot of the opportunities in that maritime space. Um, there will be support for a lot of the, the ships in, um, based in Western Australia. Um, and a lot of it, if, you, you know, if people think about um, support for ships, they might think about big ships and the, 
you know, the the um, the engines and the, the the you know the fixed things on the ships. That's really the initial part of it. But after that, most of it now is technology. Right? The technology changes so quickly that over the life of a, a ship or a submarine or something, they really have to replace that technology a number of times. So. And then, you know, getting the state-of-the-art technology on there and just having it be the, the really, the, you know, the coolest thing to start with, if you like, um, that's what the, the Navy needs. So if you think about that and you tie it back into, you know, how does that work with, with Fremantle? So some of the things you've been saying about Fremantle's, you know, unique character and ability to attract people that really want something a bit more special and, and you know, just, you know, not just live in a, an average suburban kind of, you know, house, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think there is something special about Fremantle. So a lot of the, the people that we um, that we hire do want to have that four-minute walk to work. Um, so I think, you know, there's a, there are a lot of opportunities with all the growth um, to be able to just mix that together and say, you know, there's a place um, for industry and and really, you know, I think it was Matthew saying, or, or maybe it was Jeffrey, but, but we need to have it so that there's... Um, employment as well and people can say they can live and work close by so that they don't have to always get on that freeway and go into the city and they don't have to get on the road down to Henderson and you know try and find their way into there so so yeah I think you know I think there's still a lot of appeal I think there's a lot of growth in general going to happen from the the defense industry and and I think Fremantle's in a, a good location for that it, it really doesn't take long at all to get from Fremantle down to to Henderson if you do have to go down there um, you know, which um, I went down there on, on Friday and it really doesn't take very long. Um, but you have the livability here. In fact, we often have it the other way where customers, visitors, everybody that comes to see us, so not even just our, our local people, but, you know, talking almost about tourists, they're happy that we're in Fremantle and they can come here and, you know, we can take them out for lunch, um, you know, to a nice place and they can stay in Fremantle. Or even if they stay in the city, they can come to, to Fremantle and feel like they're, they're coming to a, a nice area. So, so yeah, I think it does, you know, even the, de the growth in defence and the growth in maritime, I think it, it really almost creates more opportunities um, to, to blend that in with, with what Fremantle offers. I think it's such an important point you make and certainly when we did the consultation with the marine industries um, in recent times, the idea of being able to entertain clients in a unique environment is a huge drawcard for international visitors in particular and I think if we do lose some of those marine industries down to Henderson and other places, promoting Fremantle as your closest place to live in an urban environment, particularly for international um, people coming to work in that industry and those technology fields is really important. And we do have to just get some better transport links, so I'll keep ranting about that, down to the, the south so that we can maintain um, an ease of access for those groups. Sort of feeds a little bit with technology, marine, the industries of Fremantle, but Julian, the knowledge economy, and, and I guess you mentioned that um, the university has adapted in some ways to its location with the establishment of the postgrad in architecture. What role do you see for those links between industry and the university and how do we better create some of those things? Yeah, I think it's interesting uh, the role uh, we can play. Um, I mean, fundamentally, as industry changes, we're, we're part of the leading edge of that in helping people to change and adapt to those industries and, and people to come in and learn those skills and, and, and adapt. Um, so I think that's the obvious way. I th um, universities are in interesting places. Essentially, we... Well, I don't, but um, the, the experts do spend a lot of time um, dealing with challenges and ideas 
Um, and I think, you know, irrespective of the direction that industry goes, the rate at which it's changing and the challenge of dealing with those ideas uh, and solving those problems, um, well, universities play an enormous role in, in that and can play an enormous role in that. Um, I, I could probably go back to my earlier point. I th the, the opportunity for industry and education to be joined at the hip and to be less um, less divided and, and perhaps more more porous around that and um, and you know industry connecting it, um, both in a sort of workplace learning like our architecture students go out and do their work placements in um, the local architecture places the um, the opportunity for um, industry to come in and you know share some of that knowledge with the sort of emerging um, students and the idea of um, you know research researchers and research and industry partnering on pursuing that knowledge you know and some of the in the defense stuff is really significant but what are those other opportunities that you know exist in a sort of economy that's more akin to ours um, so I think there's lots there I think it's about and making sure it's actively engaged, actively connected, and um, and and seeing the opportunity that lies on both sides. Absolutely, Jeffrey. Did you have anything you wanted to add? I guess from a university and an industry perspective, having across the bridge between a number of those uh, journeys over time. Uh, I, I, first, I want to take up a point that uh, Matthew raised, which was that Fremantle could be a great place to live. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd assert that it is a great place to live and, and always has, has been. Um, I, I've chosen to live here for many, many decades and been away and come back and been away and come back um, because of the attributes of the place. It is an astonishingly rare uh, fusion of a number of different things. Um, the fact that we've got the blessing of the fleet coming next weekend, the fishing boat harbour next door, the main harbour, bike tracks going all over the place, um, the capacity to, to walk around a really characterful West End. Um, <laughs> the advantages are, are great. And what we do need, as Matthew said, is more people living and working here uh, and perhaps even in the same place. I mean, the opportunity of live, work, accommodation I think should be explored for a place like Fremantle um, I think the presence of the university in the city is is terrific it's it's taken over spaces that were unused and it's helped to rehabilitate the streets I would like to see more of the ground floor spaces that have been closed off that were once public spaces opened up to become public spaces again um, I, I remember back to the heady days when High Street would be closed off and every hotel along the street was given over to a particular band and you would have a blues festival where you could walk along the street and by the time you got to the other end, you were in a mesmerised state. <laughs> um, that's no longer possible, but uh, I would think that a, a massive gesture from the university back to the city would be to open up some of those ground floor spaces that have been closed off to the public. And it would help animate High Street. Um, High Street is rejuvenating, but I think that would, that kind of gesture would really, really help it. And we've had the demonstration from some of the quality small bars around the place that alcohol consumption need not be. The kind of <laughs> mad Yahoo process it once was, it can be a very civilised 
meeting opportunity. So I'd certainly encourage something like that. I think you've touched on so many points just around one, the last one you made, that the way we drink and the way we gather and the way we entertain ourselves has changed so dramatically and keeping our hospitality venues alive when they can't rely on an income stream solely based on alcohol is a, is a really interesting point. And I think certainly this year with the um, Winter Festival, you know, coming through in 10 nights in port and Hidden Treasures, opening up some of those really intriguing spaces in the West End was a fascinating way just to look at what we could potentially do on a more regular basis. And we are probably one of the only places in Western Australia where we can do great winter activities and great winter activations. We also just have to keep people out of their houses and away from Netflix and Uber Eats and all of that conversation. But some great points you make then, Geoffrey. I have to also formally apologise to our panel. It wasn't my intention that you got didn't get lunch. You were actually meant to have it before you got up here. Yeah, I know. So if you fade a little, I do apologise sincerely. Um, we'll get some questions from the floor and then I promise you will actually be able to eat your food. Um, we're at that point now. I think I've covered off a lot of the key topics I wanted to cover off. Matthew, did you have anything you wanted to add before we go to the floor? No. Excellent. Alrighty. Um, I have the lovely Julie and Lincoln, I believe, ready somewhere to take questions from the floor. Um, if you do have one, if you'd like to just raise your hand. As I mentioned earlier, if we can just keep it to the question and not your life story, I would be very, very grateful. Thank you. Just down at Linda, just here. Thanks, Lincoln. Thank you. Um, my question is to Julian. Uh, Julian, uh, great that your strategy and planning. So, could you give us two or three of the big ticket uh, strategic initiatives that Notre Dame University is going to implement over the next few years to benefit Fremantle? Absolutely. The question, um, almost a Dorothy Dix type question. So, thank you. Um, look, one of the things that we've been talking about and actually working on is um, is a global university or a global education. We've got a new Vice-Chancellor coming next year. He's coming. He's joining us from the UK. He's currently Vice-Chancellor of a university in the UK. Um, prior to that, he um, he worked in government. He worked in the diplo uh, diploma, uh, diplomatic service in the UK. And so very much as approaches education and life from a global perspective. And so I think that's going to be one of those attributes or one of those platforms that's going to be really important for us but I think benefit to the wider community of, of Fremantle. The second one for us is we've spent 25 years really focusing and growing our, um, our uh, undergraduate student education. Um, a university is more than that and needs to be more than that. And so a focus for us going forward is our research activity. Um, so what that means and hopefully um, translates into is um, I guess a more sort of uh, 365, 365, 24/7 type life in the in, in the uh, context. So um, not just undergraduate students coming and going, you know, between nine and five. Um, so that's going to be really important for us. And that the third part of that is um, is that diversification of being more than undergraduate. But as it, we've developed that, we've got a really strong reputation around that. But delivering that 
opportunities for for mature age people or postgraduate to come in back to re-enter into training to try something different to shift the, the changing workforce is is a focus for us and i guess we're responding to how work is changing and so again what that brings is not just a different demographic in terms of students a different way that students will engage with the, the with the community i guess so in terms of um, coming, you know, they'll live and they won't necessarily uh, study between, um, sorry, they won't necessarily have study as their only occupation and so they'll they'll come down to the university or to come down to Frio uh, uh, in the evening or um, on the weekend or whatever it is. So they're the sort of three focus areas I think for us um, that we're really excited about um, doing in Frio. Thanks Julian. Um, just the minister down here, Joy. Sorry, and then I'll come back to that. I was um, torn between two questions. One was about student accommodation for Notre Dame because I think that would be really great. Um, but I'm not going to ask that. I'm going to ask <laughs> you Matthew can a have question. Two yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a trick. Uh, uh, my question was to Matthew, maybe um, Matthew, to talk a little bit about the uh, 20 Lives, 20 Homes initiative and um, what motivated you to fundraise so well for that initiative as a million dollars that put together and we're very grateful for that but maybe this is an opportunity to talk about some of the antisocial behaviour and how we can perhaps try and deal with that constructively. Yeah, okay. Thanks Simone. Um, so I guess as a developer, um, my building had seven or eight homeless people living in it so from my perspective not good enough just to dislocate those individuals down around the corner and sort of further into the east end. So, so my motivation was was pure um, to to really try and address an issue that is clearly quite visible in Fremantle, but I think actually quite soluble as well. So it's it's by no means too far gone. Um, the, the, the initiative was really, and it was really Simone's idea to to start with, but an approach that state government was willing to support a housing first initiative um, to try and provide and put roofs over the, um, over the heads of homeless and particularly those who are most at risk. So the most homeless, people who have been on the streets for five plus years and you know have a whole range of um, associated issues with, that, that comes with that lifestyle. Um, the, the housing first model is, is super interesting because it actually just provides hope to people, that, that's how I've always seen it. So it's a bit like handing them out a hope note. And uh, we together with the state government um, and a services coordinator called Rua, um, who have been very successful in this space for a very long period of time and who were running um, a program called 50 Lives, 50 Homes in the Perth CBD, which is evidence-based and is proven to work. And they've housed about 200 people over um, maybe five or six years. Um, retention rate over 12 months of about 85% plus so it's a you know so the, the evidence was was in for me um, so what I did was I sort of went to five six seven um, people who can afford to promote and give some money um, raised a million dollars in in a pretty short amount of time with the support of knowing that state government would be able to provide the housing and rental subsidies for these homeless people um, the programs underway I think you know, will in, in the next, say, four to six months start to see some real results. But it's a great example of 
uh, the private sector working with government to create a program that, quite frankly, should run forever. Um, the reality is every time you take somebody off the street, probably somebody else is appearing on the street. So, so in that in that way, it's a it's a it is an issue that is very difficult to resolve. But certainly, we're doing um, our very best. I, I think it's a, a wonderful initiative. The idea is the private sector kind of seed funds this program. So um, I've made it pretty clear to government that we won't continue to keep writing checks forever. Um, ultimately, this is something that state government should run. And the reason why it'll work for state government, great, it deals with homelessness. Um, the stats on presentations to emergency departments, the policing that's involved around it um, is off the charts. And the benefits that I've certainly seen, and this is all UWA um, funded research is, um, it just tells me that this is a program that will work. There are lots of other cities in the world where this has worked. Um, and, and look, if I, if I had to put my finger on the, the two biggest issues in Fremantle that sort of dissuade people from coming here, homelessness and antisocial behaviour, and they're not always the same thing, I'll make that point, um, but those two things together with um, coordinated policing, um, you know, they're probably the things that have been most detrimental to, to, to Fremantle. And to some extent, you know, and I do love, you know, Fremantle to bits, um, they still remain so. And maybe they're always a challenge in an urban environment. That's probably just a reality um, of cities. Um, but we've got to try and get ahead of that curve. Sorry. No, it's absolutely perfect and it is such a crucial issue. I know from the Chamber the work um, that we've done with the Minister and with um, the City to try and deal with what people call crime but we're not dealing with crime, we're really dealing with antisocial behaviour and um, and a need for addressing homelessness and mental illness in, the, in our city and you're right, they are urban issues um, but as a community and a relatively small community we must be able to continue to make progress in that way. So thank you for that question. Uh, just over the end there, thanks Julie. Come down there now. Good afternoon. Uh, my question I guess is to Matthew and to Jeff and it really comes from the fact that there's been quite a bit of recent press coverage on the fact that development in an urban area, as opposed to development in a greenfields area with the proverbial whatever block, et cetera, the people who are investing in what from a developer's point of view or from an owner's point of view are disadvantaged by the way the state tax system works and by the way, uh, <clears throat> land tax works, et cetera, et cetera. So, gentlemen, uh, if you were appointed the czar of approving higher density, which we all believe is appropriate in an urban area, what are the th two things, I won't give you three, what are the two things that you would do to level the playing field so the people who want to invest in Fremantle have a fair shot at doing it? One answer each. I think that would get to two. Yeah, it's a really tough one to try and pull out two key factors because there are so many factors operating around it. Um, I think we need to look at factors like how we deal with land. Um, all our land is sold. In other parts of the world, there are land packages that are leased which allows access to housing, 
to be made at a much lower level. There are housing associations which can help people get access to housing. I think our Department of Communities has a number of really good programs in place such as their, um, their equity share process which gives people a leg up into ownership. One of the problems we have with density and trying to stop urban sprawl is that so much of the density that is built is of a poor quality. And it, it, it establishes a real resistance to the idea of density within communities. And the very qualities that we have in our suburban areas, which are manifest, are threatened by those poor quality uh, infill developments. So we need to find a way of producing infill that does not threaten those qualities and in fact helps enhance it. Um, I, I've been arguing the toss with a few government departments now that what we need is a really good display village, a demonstration project of incredibly well-designed medium density projects together in a complex that people can come and visit, see how it works uh, and understand how you can live really well in smaller spaces than people have come to expect. We still build among the largest homes in the world on, on lot sizes that are ever diminishing. So you're left with no useful outside space. Tree canopy is disappearing as we build in that manner. Tree canopy is disappearing in the infill projects that we pursue in our suburban areas because the major focus is, is yield rather than level of amenity. So we need somehow to shift the emphasis from yield to amenity and quality, quality of that amenity and quality of life that is offered. We tend with our houses on the fringe to put walls around every function. We don't need to do that. We build 230 square metre houses. We can live very comfortably in 120, 130 square metres if they're well designed. So here's my plug again for architects. <laughs> architects can make a contribution to this process. Um, so I, I, I'd, I'd love for Simone to go back to her colleagues in the cabinet and say, let's give this uh, medium density display village a real go. On a piece of land that is strategically located, visible, um, perhaps near public transport, and have it open, uh, open to the public for a period of time, well publicised and then sold off so that government can, re can get its money back from the, from the process and the individual developers who are involved uh, are also able to make their money and hopefully be market leaders by demonstrating some really good options that are not in the marketplace at the moment. I, I could go on and on. Um, it also relates to how we build. Um, we are locked into a brick and concrete type of construction culture, often on pieces of land that are inappropriate for it because we have high water tables and we should be building in frame structure with floors elevated above the ground and allow the natural ground to remain in place. So we get proper drainage and we can keep the ecology rather than benching and using fill. We're running out of sand. We've used so much fill to bench our sites. I better hand over to Matthew now. <laughs> I'll be short. Um, uh, uh, so just stamp duty as a tax, you know, be, would be the thing I'd focus on. I, I don't think I'd necessarily abolish stamp duty because I think there are moments, you know, clearly government needs to tax and, you know, otherwise we don't get the services that we all, we all enjoy. But 
Um, at moments like now, stamp duty is a, is a real disincentive to purchasing, um, so apartments for instance. Um, and and the, the, the issue is it's a real cost impost, particularly in an environment where banks turn off the lending tap, um, increase the deposits that are required. And so it ultimately, it, it means you, you just can't afford to, to buy. You can't find the money to put down to, to, to buy what you want to buy. So, so there needs to be a more flexible system where you can adjust in times like now where, where real estate markets are soft um, and quite frankly cash in when real estate markets are strong. So, 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 you know, it's all a bit static, a bit too static for my liking. That, that'd be the thing that I'd focus on if I was state government, Simone. <laughs> and get those apartment buildings filled in Fremantle. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, another question from just over the corner there. Um, see the John or Hannah? We might just have uh, one more, two more questions. I think Christy down the end there and then we will let our panel eat some food before they quietly pass out. I don't like being between you and lunch. Um, I'm Hannah Fitzharding. I'm one of the councillors of the City of Fremantle but also sit on the Rottnest Island Authority Board. Um, my question was to Brodie and I think that observation that Brodie made around uh, the type of tourists who come to Fremantle being very much the self-directed, independent, maybe the backpackers, maybe the more boutique experience. Um, and in both the Rottnest world and in any in discussions about tourism, I keep hearing a lot about the need to have package tourism opportunities and I'm just wondering how in Fremantle we best capitalise on the tourist opportunity uh, when package tourism is probably not going to be our thing anytime soon. So that was my question. We don't um, particularly focus on package tourism. We're mainly focused on FIT and premium travellers. Um, for the... I'll give an example. Um, China as a des as a as a source market, um, we're seeing on, on the east coast, um, China numbers dwindling, um, mainly on the back of package tours, and China numbers to Western Australia have um, had 95% increase in the last 12 months on the back of premium FIT um, free independent travellers coming because they want to come for a unique experience, they want to do their own thing. We don't um, particularly target those package type of tours. They still do happen um, and um, some um, travellers are not uh, as well, I guess, um, confident in travelling by themselves, so packaging still does happen, but less so these days. Thanks, Brody. Uh, maybe just Christy down the end and um, then we will, obviously our panel will be in the room dining. Um, dessert will be served very shortly as well so, and um, we can continue the conversation on a more intimate level but I'll just let Christy ask her question. This one's for Brody. Um, Brody, you talked to earlier the process that TWA is undertaking at the moment in relation to the new destination brand and really sort of unearthing the individual narratives of each sort of region within the state. How is that process different to what to how T TWA have developed their destination brand in the past? And also, how will that um, assist 
you know, the local government authority in the, in the context of the city of Fremantle um, amplify their sort of destination brand and proposition out to, you know, a WA market to really kind of bring back and attract that day tripper back to Fremantle? No, I'm going to get you asked the second question again once I've answered the first because I stopped listening. Sorry. Um, and started to focus on the answer. Um, the difference this time around compared to the last time around, I, I, didn't, I wasn't here for the last time around, but um, the difference is the first, well, the last time around, it was actually um, the marketing and the branding came from an agency and not from us. So a agency just came and told us, this is who you are and this is how you, this is what you tell people who you are. Um, this time around, we've, we've asked everyone to tell us who you are and we need then, you know, distill that down into a message and take that to consumer testing, which we're doing now to see if that actually resonates with people. Um, and it, it, it's worked, this model and method has worked in other destinations. It's not, you know, it's not something we've just thought up and thought it's the best one. Like um, we engaged someone from Tasmania that did it with Tasmania. Um, and th they came out with a campaign work of go behind the scenery and um, go local. Um, and they've had significant growth in their tourism numbers over the last five years. What, what was the second question, sorry? Yeah, too, too late. Um, the second question was really, how will that body of work help the local government authorities, so the city of Fremantle, amplify their destination brand to attract the day tripper back to Fremantle? Um, good question. Don't, not sure I'm going to have a, uh, an answer that will satisfy you, but I might need to think about it a little bit more. The day tripper, I mean, the... The day tripper, depending on where they're coming from, so Tourism WA doesn't particularly focus on, on interstate. We leave that to um, RTOs, regional tourism offices. Um, we leave that to um, like Destination Perth, Australia Southwest. We leave it to Fremantle as well. Um, so day trippers, our, we're not targeting those. Um, but our, our, I guess the overarching brand messaging that we're going to come up with uh, everyone will be able to tap into and use. There'll be a brand architecture that local businesses, local um, LGAs, so forth, will be able to grab that and use that in in a, a number of different ways, shapes, and forms. Um, and they'll be able to market in that way. Does that? I'm not sure if that answers your question. If not, you can get me at dessert. Thank you so much. I know many of you do still have some questions um, to go, but it has been a a long and um, interesting discussion. I think uh, we've jumped around a little bit, but there's some really strong key themes that just keep coming out in every conversation that we have in that there is so much pride in Fremantle. We are a walkable city. We have a unique offering. Um, we have some challenges around antisocial behaviour and other things. We have a huge attraction to both students as well as international students. Uh, tourists as well as um, some really interesting technology industries and I think how we connect the dots into the future is just going to be our challenge and to continue to have these conversations and hear from the diversity of perspectives that we have locally is just such a unique opportunity. So to our panellists today, thank you 
all so much for giving up your time. Um, very, very much appreciate it. Um, to those in the room, thank you for your questions. Please continue to enjoy the beautiful drinks from Little Creatures and Fern Grove Wines. Enjoy your dessert. Um, we're not going anywhere for another hour, so lots of time to uh, continue the conversation. Um, thank you all again. <laughs>